All right, where we saw last week and where we picked up is we focused particularly on the section um, from Ephesians 5 that talks about how marriage is a picture of God's marriage to his church. And we described it near the end that what this is, is God has this great display. And so what our earthly marriages are, the great purpose of marriage, what God has instituted in this world, is to be a living drama, a play lived out before the world where each spouse has a role. And this drama is a gospel drama. It's meant to communicate to the watching world around us that our marriage would say something about God's love for his church. And each spouse has a role in that. Husbands have a role and wives have a role. And in order for the drama to go well, you both have to play your part. Both women and women have a role. And both of these roles require submission. That is the context of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, where it talks about marriage. Verse 21, so I read it again today. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a call to all Christians. And then what Paul does, beginning in verse 22, is he is giving specific application of what submission should look like in the context of various and specific relationships. Husbands to wives. Wives to husbands, children to parents, and vice versa. In other words, both husbands and wives have a role to play in living out the gospel before the world in their marriage, and each of those roles requires a particular form of submission. The script for submission looks differently, though. They are not both displaying the gospel in the same way, but in carrying out their roles, their script The script that God gives us here in Ephesians 5 is going to dictate to us this, how we as men or as women are supposed to reveal the gospel. And in this, we provide a fuller and more profound expression of the good news of Jesus Christ than we could simply by ourselves. The script for men's submission dictates that men submit by sacrificing for their wives and bearing the weight of responsibility. Husbands are called here in this passage, as we'll look at next week, are called the head. God tells them that they are responsible for the family and for the marriage. And we will look at that more closely next week. And then it says, well, how will the wife submit? How will she fulfill Ephesians 5.21 in this particular role and carry out the good news of the, of the gospel? Well, the script for women is to submit by submitting specifically to and bearing with the weight of their husband. Now, this immediately, to our modern and contemporary ears, rings of patriarchy and misogyny, and even the fact that a man is the one delivering the sermon uh, may make uh, some folks uncomfortable. I did tell my wife that she had to preach the sermon, but she told me no. So, it's not on me. She failed to submit. Um, (laughs) But over the course of church history, but in particular the last hundred years, this has become something, um, this issue has become an issue of great debate and confusion and anger. But remember, this, these roles and this script is in order to display the beauty of the gospel. That means that we should assume that there is supposed to be something beautiful in each of these roles. And so what I'm going to provide for us this morning, I want to provide an apologetic 
which means an explanation and a reason for this call to women while not apologizing for this call. It's an apologetic saying this is the reason for this in the text and for this call while not apologizing for it because the gospel is supposed to be beautiful and therefore there's something attractive about this call to men and women. My hope this morning is to clear the confusion and the misconceptions of this call so that we might see the beauty of the gospel more dramatized more beautifully in a wife's submission to her husband. So to that end, in order to understand the part wives play, this is our proposition for the morning. And it is a kind of a proposition. I am a little bit less preaching. There's going to be a little bit more explanation and teaching this morning. And so a little bit different tone than probably where we'll be at next week in order to kind of get away from some of the haze, help clear the haze, help us understand this better. But in order to understand the role wives play in the gospel drama of marriage, we must see that this call to submission within three different areas. First, within its creational context. Second, we're going to see, we're going to have to clear it of the, of the abuses. And then lastly, we're going to see it in light of its gospel script. So those are the three points this morning. So first, we're going to look at it within its creational context. Ephesians chapter 5 references... Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, that Paul is basing and grounding his view of what marriage ought to be upon God's created order. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, as we read this morning, we read there that God has created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female. What we have in the created order is this, one humanity but in two sexually distinct instances or two sexually distinct displays of God's image bearing, male and female. This flies in the face of the fast, I mean downhill, coming at us like a freight train cultural movement for the last 15 to 20 years. That the ideal human is not an androgynous composite. Rather, male and female in the fullness, I'm going to use a 50-cent word, in the fullness of their polarities. In other words, being fully masculine and fully feminine, not something nebulously in the middle, is what reflects the image of God in ways that neither man nor woman can do alone. We need both. Now, that's Genesis chapter 1, and that was not really questioned even in the church, really, And and isn't in any kind of orthodox setting. But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. As in Genesis chapter 2 is where we see some of the controversy begin. And the way women are referred to in even the creational order. In fact, for example, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then he makes Eve. And people will say, well, this is exhibit A. Look at the Bible and its low view of a woman. Of women, the Bible is oppressive in its view of them. Look, it's calling a woman to be the little helper on the prairie. That's how the Bible views women. But that is an incorrect reading of the text, because the word translated "helper" here is the Hebrew word "ezer." E z e r would be the way you transliterate it into English, which, when used in other places in the Bible, almost always refers to Yahweh Himself. And it refers to Yahweh himself as the Lord God, our helper. 
As in God is our Azare, our strength and our deliverer. Let me give you some examples of this. In Psalm 33, verse 20, it says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, Azare, and our shield. Psalm 70, verse 5, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The other times this word help is used is in the book of Joshua in a military context where there is need for reinforcements in the midst of a battle. That without God's help, without God being the Azair, that the people of Israel would be wiped out in the midst of the war. And therefore the word Azair is a military word. It evokes strength and ability and provision. Saying God is our help means that there is something that we lack that God then provides for us and he makes up the gap. There's something that we are insufficient in that he is sufficient in. And therefore, to help someone, you have to be superior to them in some aspect and in some particular way. That you have resources or talents or knowledge that the other person does not currently have. Let's bring us back to woman then. That the first word that describes what women are in God's created order is God says, Adam, here is your Azair, your helper. And this implies an aspect of superiority not inferiority, right? Of strength, not weakness. A wife, in other words, what he's saying, in the created order, brings her resources of strength and provision and sufficiency to her husband and provides for him in a way in which he is currently insufficient. She does not replace him. No. She empowers him and enables him. And not only does it say that she is a helper, but it also says that she is fit for him. When the Bible says a helper fit in Genesis 2.18, other translations may use the word suitable or help meet, but it's actually in the Hebrew, it's two words that more literally would read, it just would make for an awkward reading in our English translations, but more literally would read like this, that she is a helper like opposite him. A helper, ooh, Just would like to share, I'm going through puberty. Um, I need to sound a little more masculine as I share this sermon. <laughs> so which is it? Like him or opposite him? And the answer is, yes, it's both. You with me? All right. Like opposites. And in this help, it brings us to the point of actually being able to provide a working definition of gender, which is rather important these days. Here's a working definition of gender I've taken from Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor in our denomination. He said this, gender is overlapping like, but distinguishable opposite ways of being human. A man and a woman are equal, but they are not interchangeable. They fit together like two puzzle pieces. Two puzzle pieces exactly alike would not fit together, but they cannot be Uh, so unalike that they cannot be interlocked with one another. Rather, it is like a man and a woman who, wouldn't you know, were made for each other. In this way, man compliments woman and woman compliments man. There's a whole doctrine on this called complementarianism, that men and women complement one another and thus are in image-bearing humanity. They they together form an image-bearing humanity that more beautifully and wholly reflects 
who God is. That if we did not have women, we would miss an aspect of God's image bearing on the world. And if we did not have men, we would miss an aspect of God's image bearing in the world. And the institution where this is most profoundly seen, we have men, we have women, so we see God's image, but the institution where this comes together to be most profoundly seen is in the institution of marriage, where two image bearers become one flesh thus clearly articulating and reflecting the relationship of God and his glory as our Trinity, Trinitarian God. That we have a three-person Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but they are one God, and it is a mystery. And so is marriage. The man, as an image bearer, is given the purpose to hold dominion over the earth, it says in Genesis 1.27, to be fruitful and multiply. And the wife has the same mission. That she comes alongside the husband as a helper and sharer in that dominion. That women are supposed to rule and reign over the earth as much as the men that they come alongside. And the wife comes alongside as a helper and share in that dominion. And it is, she is absolutely necessary for the mission to be fruitful and to multiply. So this was meant to be something beautiful and profound and glorious in the creational order Man and woman in marriage, not demeaning to either man or woman, but something happened, didn't it? Right? And it doesn't take a genius to see that for all of human history, men have abused their as heirs. We have misused and abused the role of women as the helper, the complementary piece, puzzle piece that God has given us. And therefore, in order to see the call to submit and to play the role of helper, we must clear away for a little bit. Clear away the smoke that all the abuse has created. And so that's the second thing I want us to look at this morning. That if we're going to see this gospel call, but women, the role they play in dramatizing the gospel, we must see it apart from its abuses. And what I want to see is that the world of abuse as we know it was predicted at the fall. When God came down, Adam and Eve, they sin against God, and God comes down and issues consequences upon their sin. And both men and women are banished from his presence out of the garden. And we see that in their consequences, both men and women are faced with the prospect of painful labor. Women in the birth of children and men in the daily labor in dealing with a fallen ground. And God specifically speaks of the consequence the fall has for both men and women. And when he comes to the consequence for women, it says this in Genesis 3.16. He says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. In other words, he's saying, as a result of your sinfulness and your fallenness, you will long for intimacy, and you will long for the side-by-sideness that you are supposed to have experienced in paradise, but this longing will not be reciprocated. Instead, her husband will rule over her. She will want a husband. Instead, instead, she will get a hierarchy. She will want a lover, and instead she will get a lord. In Genesis 1, both male and female are called to have dominion over the earth, but as a cursed consequence of the fall, what we find is now the propensity in men for us to take our call to have dominion as meaning we get to dominate our helper. Now, why mention this? Well, it's patently obvious, right? Is there a historical record of men dominating women? Yes. Is there a historical record of men abusing women, in particular their wives? Yes. And is there a historical record of men using the church and using the Bible to defend such abuses? Sadly, yes. So what I want you to hear, the Bible is not prescribing this paradigm of abuse, 
of men lording it over women, but rather it is a description of the consequences of sin. And so let's, let's, we got to remove some of that abuse and the way people have misused the Bible in some places. I'm going to say seven things of what it does not mean for women to submit and the way this has been misused. I'm going to clear these things away. Submission, the call to submit, does not mean women are inferior in worth, value, or dignity. In fact, one of the most profound ways of evangelistic display, what happened in the early church, is that the value and worth of women was put on front, the front burner. Rodney Stark, who was a sociologist and historian, he used to teach at the University of Washington. I think he now teaches at Baylor University. I don't believe he was a believer when he wrote the, the majority of his books, but I believe he has now professed faith. And in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he said this, Amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the church subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than they did in the rest of the Greco-Roman world. In the church, women were afforded a higher status than the rest of the world. The Bible profoundly seeks to advance the dignity of women. In Scripture, women are called sons of God. And even this, people have sought to say, well, that's patriarchal. No, that is not a patronizing statement about gender. But it was sons in that, in that culture who got the wholeness of the inheritance. And so by calling women sons of God, it is communicating that they are full recipients in the kingdom of God and will receive the full inheritance as like any other son. It is actually espousing their great value in God's kingdom. Women are called co-heirs with Christ, citizens in his kingdoms, and the Christian ethic even afforded women rights in areas that that the world around them wouldn't even think. In other words, in the ancient Near East, women were never allowed to divorce their husbands. But the husbands, were, though, could divorce their wife for any reason. If she burned the toast, there was rabbinical debates about this. Well, could I divorce my wife for not preparing the meal correctly? And the New Testament actually gives women not only the right to divorce their husbands in the face of abuse and adultery, but it actually calls husbands to remain with their wives. This provided an enormous amount of security for women It protected, the early church protected widows who had no children providing for them. It provided for little female infants. In a world and a culture where female infanticide was rampant, the Christians, wherever they went, put a stop to it. And in doing so, they increased female populations around wherever the church went. Wherever the church went. So submission does not mean women are inferior in value or worth. Second, the call to submission does not mean women lack importance in life and ministry. Christianity, as we see in the early church, highlighted the ministry and the capacity of women. The voice of women is lauded throughout redemptive history. We hear their voices. They speak. They speak in the Bible. They have whole books as their stories are communicated. We have Esther and Ruth. We hear their voice in Hannah and Elizabeth and Mary. Jesus in his ministry, did you know that the primary supporters financially of his ministry was done by women? There was a group of women who had an abundance of resources that the Gospel of Luke tells us funded Jesus' day-to-day ministry. 
Women played a significant role in the gospel advance. They were the first witnesses to the resurrection. They were the primary testimony that the gospel accounts looked to. In Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes on all the people there at Pentecost, Peter says, he prophesies in Joel 2, he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. In the early church, we see Phoebe, Priscilla, Lydia, and Acts 16, Paul lists 10 women who are co-laborers with him in gospel ministry. Third, submission does not mean that women must give unquestioning, silent obedience to their husbands. The only person we offer unquestioning obedience to is Jesus. A woman should not follow her husband into sin. Whether that is a man who is encouraging his wife to lie or to commit some sort of financial impropriety, or requiring that she engage in an activity that violates her conscience, such, such as issues of entertainment or in certain sexual activities, these things are outside the bounds of the call to women. Peter said it this way in Acts. We usually refer to this in regards to the government, but it's true for women to their husbands. It is better to obey God than man. And it certainly does not mean that she should simply remain quiet while her husband makes all the decisions. In fact, a wife, as a good as there, must, must speak up. She must use her voice to provide insight and wisdom in the decision-making process of the household. In fact, a wife cannot carry her out her creational role while remaining silent. She has a responsibility to speak up when she sees her husband particularly moving towards sin or towards foolishness. Fourth, Submission, the call to submit, does not mean that a wife is silent in the face of abuse. Submission does not mean that a wife should or ought to excuse abuse. Now, let me give a caveat to this. We have, in our therapeutic world, begun to define abuse so widely that almost everything, any cross word, is described as abuse. We, we, it's not the time for today, but we need some sort of theology of what abuse is, and it's difficult to find, but if we make everything abuse, then nothing is abuse. But physical abuse, horrific verbal and emotional abuse, sexual abuse, a man who abuses his wife needs to be dealt with, not first by the church, but by the state. God has given us both the church and the state. He has ordained them both. Experts say that abuse is present in almost 20% of marriages. And that includes many Christian marriages. And 85% of that abuse is from the man to the wife. If you are in immediate danger, my call to you this morning is to call the police and to get out. Remove yourself from that situation. In the face of various levels of abuse, a wife may in time, a wife may in time offer forgiveness, may be open to restoration in the future, but abuse in the present is not to be tolerated by the church by the wife or by the state. Fifth, submission. The call to submit does not mean a woman, women are beholden to cultural stereotypes. Each wife, together with her husband, must determine how she can best bring glory to God in her marriage. Universal directives based on societal preferences and cultural norms are not necessarily appropriate. The Bible does not specify who drives the car, who pays the bills, or how many hours outside of the home a wife should or could work. Paul says God created man as the head of the marriage and the woman submits to him, but he doesn't go into much detail about it. It's as if Paul, in writing this gospel play, is saying, men and women, here's your role, and he's like writing a um, a storyline for um, improvisational actors. He's saying, here's the direction you got to go. 
But the jokes you tell in the midst of that and the things that you do, that's up to you. The script here is, is that we are to be spirit-indwelt, improvisational, improvisational actors and actresses for the glory of God. He has given the broad directive. Scripture gives us many details to help us in living a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And we look to those to help give us the details as to how we carry out these various roles. That will look different in different relationships based on personality and giftings and seasons of life. When a lot of conservatives in particular take these passages, this is where they go awry. As they begin to draw in some traditional cultural norms and they bring them in and kind of use them as the great examples of what it looks like to be a man or a woman. The woman must stay home at home and not work, but the Proverbs 31 woman went out and worked. Women should raise the kids while the man just focuses on making money, except the next chapter in Ephesians chapter 6, it speaks primarily to um, parenting directly to the father, not to the mother. Neither accepting nor rejecting cultural norms. And understand this, this is Paul who said, I have become all things to all people. And therefore, sometimes if we reject cultural norms, we can put a blockage in front of people for the gospel. And so these things should be considered for how we play out femininity and masculinity. But the responsibilities, we are not to look at these things as saying accepting or rejecting cultural norms are what define being consistent to the word here. Six, the call to submission does not mean the woman must submit to all men. Notice in verse 22, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Your own husbands. This is very important because the context of Ephesians 5 is not laying out universal male and female relational designs. So in other words, anybody who looks at this and says women cannot be in politics or cannot run companies is um, not actually, that's a false equivalency with the text. It's taking a principle and actually applying it wrongly. Seventh, seventh, the call to submission does not mean it can be demanded by husbands. The call is to women, not to husbands to enforce. Submission inherent to its very nature is something that is given, not taken. And not forced. Martin Lloyd-Jones, not exactly a bastion of progressive liberalism, he was a 20th century Welsh Welsh, uh, Calvinistic preacher. Uh, He said this, that a wife, if she's not doing her role, that the husband, what the husband should do is seek to win her submission by his love and then leave her to God. He went on to say that submission can never be demanded. It is merely to be received by the husband as a gift. Submission is a gift. And that leads us to our last point. So now we've done all this labor to set the stage from creation, to clear the smoke from the fall. Now we finally get to it. What is the call to submission? And this brings us back to where we left off last week and where we began today, the drama of the gospel, the script of the gospel. We must see this call to submission as part of the gospel script. This call is an aspect displaying the good news. What Jesus did in winning redemption for us was an act of free grace. It was a gift. We could not demand it. We had no right to it. And yet he submitted himself to obedience to the Father and to the cross for our good as his free gift to us. And right where we left off in saying that submission is not demanded, submission is a gift, it is a gift of grace where the wife in obedience to Jesus, submits her life to her husband. 
Let me define submission in this way, give you a dictionary definition, and we'll try to bring it to life. Submission is the voluntary gift. I know I'm being redundant there, but we're trying to push the voluntary aspect of this. The voluntary gift of subordination by one equal to another equal. Submission is choosing to subordinate oneself to another equal. This is your gospel script, wives. And while the world may look at voluntary subordination as degrading and oppressive to women, the gospel says it actually will draw out and bring about a profound dignity. Let me point you in this direction. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says this. I want you to understand, this is Paul again speaking, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Speaking of God the Father. It is a foundational Christian doctrine that the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are equal in power, in substance, and in glory, and they have been equal for all of eternity. And yet, in the incarnation and the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, while retaining equality with God the Father, subordinates himself to the will of the Father. Who can only honestly say that Jesus was oppressed when it was his own decision? When he did that, if the Son of God determined that subordination was not below him, then how can we say that the role of gifted submission of one woman to one man is demeaning to women? She's playing out the role of Jesus. The subordination of obedience of the Son to the Father actually demonstrates not a lack of value and worth for who Jesus was, but it actually is what? It is the means of drawing out the fullness of his dignity and his glory. The cross is the greatest display of the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When one equal subordinates themselves to another equal of their own free choosing, it reveals the highest form of freedom. And in that, it provides a more life-giving dignity to women and combats the worth-taking grid of dignity that the world offers us. You see, a subtle yet spiritually debilitating change occurs in a woman when her dignity is measured by her wealth, by her ability to control circumstances, by her number of children, by how well she schools her children, the size or beauty of her house, her personal appearance, or her personal accomplishments in the home or in the workplace. These are all wonderful things, but if we actually look to any one of these, or if we make life in the church about whose worth is more, the homeschool mom or the mom who runs a company, we've actually degraded their worth into something earthly, when such measurements turn a woman's attention from God's purposes for her to her own purposes or the world's purposes for her. The gospel sets women free from this world's grid of power and worth. In the gospel, God removes the comparison and the performance price tags that we put on ourselves and replaces them with the knowledge of our infinite value to God's eternal redemptive purposes in this world. God has always made women to be a part of reflecting his glory and his image. And now he also has made women and the role of wives to submit to be a part of reflecting his redemptive purposes to the ends of the earth. 
Women have the great value of being brought into this role of displaying before the world what it looks like for Christ to subordinate himself to the Father. And in that displaying his love for both God the Father and for all those he would redeem. Far from being oppressive, this is actually dignifying. It catches your life up into something eternal of consequences. Now you might say, well, okay, perhaps... Perhaps now a right understanding of this is that the Bible doesn't put forth an oppressive understanding of this. But so what does this submission actually mean practically? It's not oppressive, but what is it practically? Because I still struggle with that. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, the vast majority of this is you're going to have to work out for yourself. That's why I tell people often in premarital counseling, yeah, go back to counseling in nine months. I can only do so much. In fact, I can do about yay. In fact, let's just stop. Let's stop doing premarital counseling because you have to try to figure this out along the way. But there is a critical clue that comes to us in verse 33 as to what the practicalities of submission look like. This whole section of marriage ends with this summary in verse 33. Husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. Now some people have taken a, made a huge deal out of verse 33. There was actually a very prominent book, uh, maybe some of you have read it, called Love and Respect that was entirely based around this verse. And their take on it is a, they take a rather psychological approach to this verse. And what they claim is that based on this verse, that the fundamental need that men have is to be respected. And that the fundamental need that women have is to be loved. I think that misses the point. That might be true. There might be scientific evidence to prove that. But here's what is absolutely true. I'm sad if no one loves me. I think I need both. I don't think there's something about my masculinity that does not need love and only needs respect. What is Paul getting at here then? In verse 33, in calling women to respect husbands, is not about men having a higher psychological need for respect. The point here is that there is a need for respect because of the man's relational position in the marriage. He is the head. He has been given this role of leadership and authority. And we can shake our fists at God and go, in your providence, I don't understand this, but it's the positional thing. It's this positional place that demands respect. And not only that, but the point is that the role God has given men as the head is one in which the position calls for a higher need of respect from those that will follow him. And I might add that the position of head would most likely come with indeed a higher felt need that those he leads respect him for his leadership. There is an immense, have you ever led? There's an immense vulnerability and fear that comes with being the person who is responsible. That means the husband, he is the responsible one. When Adam and Eve both sin, when God comes knocking in the garden, he goes, he goes knock, knock, knock. I'd like to see Adam, please. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam, because he held man responsibility for the fall of humanity. That is an enormous responsibility. The husband takes the hits. He feels the weight. The leadership is hard on any level, but the leader gets the rocks most often thrown at them, and it is exhausting. The team leader in war who, who, who takes, looks to take the enemy position leads from the front and is most likely to take the bullet's the quickest. To be at the head is to feel one's, this is the most important thing, to be at the head is to feel one's inadequacies most acutely. 
And this is actually, if you were to talk to every man here, the great fear that they have is that they will be found out for what they are. Inadequate. That one does not have the required gravitas to get the job done. And those who are called to follow in our fallen world, what is our natural response to people in leadership? We do two things. We resist their leadership or we criticize their leadership. This is not an acutely feminine issue. Oh, women just like to take control over their husbands. No, this is a human issue. And the issue is the follower and the one who is the head. We hate being under authority, and when we are forced to be under authority, we love to criticize that authority. Many of you spent hours and hours yesterday watching college football, and what did you do last night and this morning? You criticized the inadequacies and the poor decision-making by coaches and QBs from all over the country, a sport in which the vast majority of you have never played. We have a whole term for this. It's called Monday morning quarterbacking. And the backseat driver, the practical application, the call to submit to your husbands is to give him the respect that he needs so that he is able to lead a job for which he is already inadequate to do. Perhaps it is the best day-to-day practical phrase to remember in applying submission towards respect. If, here, if I can just say, you're like, you give me nothing practical. Like, I know this is not even practical. This is just a phrase to remember to take into your daily life. Submission is this, it is the choice to give strength to. It is the choice to give strength to. It is the choice to give strength to your husband. One pastor put it this way, men are like a 10-year-old football. If you've ever seen a 10-year-old football, and I just lost one down a gutter this week, you know that it looks, what does it look like? It's tired, and it's worn out, and I love this innuendo, and it loses air constantly. Wait for it. You'll get it. Then you'll window. That, that is how a man's fragile sense of self-respect is. We lose that air constantly. And what is left is a grievous sense of our own inadequacies. And there is need for the wife to stick a needle of encouragement and care into the deflated football that is us. Not to pump us up with wind, but to pump us up with truth and encouragement. Choosing to give strength to Choosing to give strength to. And that is the disposition of the beautiful wife, that she gives gravitas to her husband's role as head. It's kind of hard to lead if no one is following. In other words, it's funny, God actually says, husbands, you're the head. He never says to lead. He says, this is your position. Whether you like it or not, whether she's in charge of everything, you're the head, you're responsible. But where does leadership come in? when someone actually follows you. You ever had somebody who's like, I'm a leader, and you're like, I don't see anybody following you, bro. And that's how it is in marriage. It means you give him the gift of accepting his care and his leadership. Even if his care and his leadership is clunky and frankly rather scary to you, where is he taking our family? About a year ago, I was in a place where I was making some significant and weighty decisions, or I was in constant conversations with Meredith about a number of things and a number of, one particular issue. And I was getting her advice and I was complaining and I was, I'm sure she was very concerned about where I was emotionally about some of these decisions. And I remember one day she simply said to me, whichever way you choose, I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you take us. 
I cannot tell you the wind that put under my wings. Did I deserve it? No, I'd spent months talking about how inadequate I felt and how I didn't know what to do and I, I couldn't figure anything out. This is really, I'm really developing her confidence in me in these, all these conversations. And yet she looked at me and said, I'll follow you. It means the wife supports the husband carrying out that role. She encourages him when he's discouraged. She helps him in his areas that he is weak because he has many. And you will have places where you are strong. Remember, you're in his heir. And so you have places of strength. And the wise husband, we'll look at this next week, knows what his wife's strengths are, and he delegates a lot. And so she advises him regarding his decisions. She is his greatest counselor. It means the wife promotes him carrying out the role of leadership. She doesn't take it from him, nor does she allow him to advocate. But instead, she assertively, assertively encourages him and supports him to be what God has called him to be, which is the head. Practically speaking, might I say this? For some of you wives, listen, there are going to be so many ways in which you're going to be wondering why God put him in charge. And there's ways in which he's wondering why God made him as the head. And there's many ways in which as a wife you would do a better job. And that is a vulnerable place for you and your husband to be. In the place of the high call of leadership for the man is the great temptation to say, I'm going to abdicate responsibility. We would rather avoid the responsibility and avoid the blame, right? What's the first thing that Adam does? It's her fault. As long as sin has existed, it's her fault. The abdication of responsibility. But it's here that the wise and beautiful wife says to him, you know what, you are an idiot. And I have no idea why God put you in this position, but he says you gotta do it, so go do it. No, actually, that's probably not how the way it should go, right? No, crushing criticism and perpetual nagging are not gonna get you to the man, the leader that you want. No, the wise and beautiful wife says to him, you must be scared to death. And this has to be so hard. I am here. And I'm here with you. And I am for you. And I'm going nowhere. God is your king. I am your wife. He will lead you. And I will help you. Now lead. Now lead. And some of you are thinking, well, if I don't do this, then what's going to happen? The ball is going to get dropped. And things aren't going to go well. Yeah. That is sometimes what you might have to let them do. We give our, our young men opportunities to fail. Well, guess what? Just because somebody gets married does not mean that they don't need opportunities to fail in their leadership and to learn from it. And for you to be there at the end when he goes, what happened? How did this, why did the ball get dropped here? And she goes, you, big fella, you dropped the ball. In a kind and gracious way, remind him that it's your responsibility. I'm called to help you lead, not to do the leadership for you. So, submission is about giving a gift of strength and support, and this is really critical, because it's absolutely true, to a needy and undeserving spouse. Does he deserve for you to follow his leadership? Absolutely not. But remember, the gospel is a gift. Jesus gives to those who don't deserve us, and so the call for the wives to give submission, to follow someone who doesn't deserve it, to respect one who is not, and in fact has probably lost it, and yet you say, I choose to give you the gift of following you. Some of you of older may know the name E.V. Hill. He was an evangelist in the middle part of the 20th century, kind of in the same vein as Billy Graham, African-American pastor in L.A., and his wife, when his wife died, he gave the eulogy. And after years and years of being married to her, he, took, and he said this, 
about his wife. He said, my wife was a child of great wealth. She was educated by presidents of the universities. Her parents were president, uh, university presidents. She had lived in mansions. She had many suitors who were extremely wealthy. She had been all over the world. And yet she chose to marry him, a poor preacher. And because of his poverty and the roles that he took, they continually lived in the early years. They lived in poor accommodations and hardly had enough money to provide for their basic needs. And he shared this story. He said, one night... I came home early in my marriage, and my wife had the lights all out in the house, and she had candles lit. And I thought, oh, yeah. She said to me, I thought we could just eat dinner by candlelight tonight. He said, that works for me. So he went to the bathroom to wash his hands, and when he got there, he flipped the switch for the lights, but the lights didn't come on. And he realized the power was out. Then he realized that the power was out because there had been no money to pay the bill. And he realized that his wife was not just setting the mood for romance, at least that's what he hoped she was doing, but that the power was turned off and he came out in his shame and a sense of defeat and said, I am so sorry. And she began to cry and she said, you work so hard, there's just no money. But it's not because you aren't trying and it's not because you're not working hard. So I just thought, Tonight we can eat by candlelight. And E.V. Hill at this point in the funeral just began to weep. And he said, in that place of my fragility, she could have crushed me. And yet she said, let's eat dinner by candlelight. Now I know that this puts you women in a vulnerable place. And that too is a gospel picture. Jesus taking on flesh and humbling himself involved taking on risk. Involved becoming vulnerable. So how in the world does a wife continue to follow a husband's lead when his leadership leads to the lights being turned off? Perhaps you're even thinking, this isn't real life. These stories are nice, but this is romanticized. You should see the smuck that I'm married to. The thought that this guy would be responsible head of the household who daily dies to himself to sacrifice in his love for me. I don't have that kind of husband. But don't you realize that as a Christian, yes, you do. It's just not the one you share a bed with and a mortgage with. This is why in verse 22 it says this, we submit to our husbands, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This does not mean your husband is your Lord. It means that you're looking beyond your husband to a greater and more perfect groom. Jesus is the ultimate helpmeet. He is like you in that he took on flesh. He is human. But you know what, wives? He is not like you in that he is holy and perfect. And this is applicable for all of us, not just the women in the room or the singles in the room. This is applicable, or the married people in the room. This is applicable for the singles in the room. When you become a Christian, Jesus, and this is, we got to get past this, Jesus is not an idea you believe in. He is a person to whom you are married to. He is your spouse. In an intimate and daily union, he has bound himself to you and he has bound you to him. And he has given you his signet ring and saying, you are precious in my sight. I will be faithful to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are covered by my love. So beautiful wives of the church, what are you supposed to do with this? You say, Christ, I will follow you. You're the one who I know will sacrifice for me. I know this because you already laid down your life for me. You're the one who has provided sacrificial love over me. 
And as my perfect spouse, if you tell me to follow this deeply imperfect, wildly needy, dangerously inadequate earthly spouse, then I will. And I will do it not because he deserved it, because you do. And so wherever you lead me, I'll follow. Let's pray. Well, that was a lot to chew, God. Seven points in the middle would have been enough. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, what I was not able to break down into bite-sized pieces, that the Spirit of God would come now and hover over the doubts that still remain, the questions that are there, the internal and spiritual and emotional resistance. And Lord, so I pray for the wives in this room who are looking at an enormous task in front of them to keep following. Lord, the whole context of this is we need the spirit of the living God to do this. And so would you fill up the wives in this room with the love of Jesus Christ for them? Fill them up. They desperately need your spirit, God. Would you fill them up for this task to support and to follow and to call husbands into leadership roles, to love them well. So Lord, would you do that? Lord, for those in this room who are deeply hurt by this, who are resistant to this call because of the wounds, oh, would you come heal? Would they find in you a spouse who heals their broken souls? And that they would know you as the true lover of their soul, the one who has formed them and made them, who calls them your own. That be the the ruling and reigning voice in their life. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand.